Hi, I'm Rick Samprin, filling in for Bill Kelly on today's Bill Kelly Show podcast. The latest national crime data for 2018 reveals that per capita, Hamilton is the highest rate of police-reported hate crimes in this country. Feed Ontario's latest hunger report shows that Hamilton Center is the second highest per capita food bank use in 2018. And we speak with local lawyer Jeff Manishin about multiple investigations that have been launched after two men convicted of violent offenses and detained at a Toronto mental health facility walked away earlier this week, including one who got on a plane and fled the country. Enjoy the podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Latest national crime data for 2018. And you heard this on CHML News this morning. Data released by StatsCan reveals that per capita, Hamilton has the highest rate of police reported hate crimes in this country. 97 hate incidents were reported to Hamilton police last year, equating to 17.1 hate crimes reported for every 100,000 people in this city. The rate is more than three times the national average of 4.9 per 100,000 people. Out of a total of nearly 1,800 police reported hate crimes in 2018. Quebec City, number two on the list, had had 89 incidents equating to 11 reported hate crimes per 100,000 people. And you're thinking, well, what about Toronto? They have all these shootings. You know, there's a high crime rate there. What's happening with hate crimes in T.O.? Well, Toronto, with five times the population of Hamilton, reported 6.4 hate crimes for every 100,000 people in the city. Hamilton's at 17.1. And I think it's fair to say that Toronto is one of the most, if not the most, diverse cities, not only in Canada, but around the world. The numbers year over year have declined across the board in Canada, with just over 2,000 total police-reported hate crimes in 2017. But Hamilton bucked the trend. Hamilton's going the other way. There were 91 reported in 2017, 97 in 2018. So what's happening here? Why the rise? Well, let's bring in our first guest here, Kojo Dampney, Manager of Programs at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, and he joins us now. Kojo, good morning. Yes, good morning. So I'm going to guess that you're not surprised to hear any of these stats. No, I'm not surprised at all. But when you hear them, it must be, you know, in your position, being a visible minority in this community, uh, it, 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 it's got to be troubling, disturbing, all of the above. Yeah, well, we've at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, we've always been troubled at uh, at many incidents that uh, that we hear about. Whether we have to go in and and talk to individuals or do training or suggest policy changes or um, or do some referrals, whether it has to be legal or what have you. So. We we know that uh, the numbers are actually under under reported. I would estimate that um, there's the numbers are actually 50 to 85 percent more than what was reported from the police, because these are numbers that come from the Hamilton police. Right. These are police reported hate crimes in Hamilton in Canada. The, the, the stats are only when someone reports an incident, but we know that many incidents, most incidents, are not reported. Exactly. So then that's, that's why um, I think those numbers are not even, uh, are not even accurate. So 
Um, there's much work, much work to be done. I think in Hamilton there are other organizations that are doing the work. Uh, the Hamilton Legal Clinic has been doing work to address some of these issues. The Disability Justice Network of uh, Ontario are doing work uh, to uh, to address some of these issues. Some groups at McMaster University are also trying to address these issues. So there are uh, community organizations trying to um, address the issue of hate in our city, um, but then doing that work, we are not we are not hearing from uh, municipal government and sometimes even provincial and and uh, and the federal government as well. So, what is the role of government in this equation? What should the province, the city, the federal government be doing? Yeah. So, for example, I think if you look at Toronto, their city just adopted an anti uh, racism strategy. So they have a designated um, department that deals with uh, anti-black racism in various institutions in the city. Dedicated, they're doing their work and they're using an anti-oppressive, anti-racism uh, framework to uh, address these issues. Um, in Hamilton, we don't have an anti-racism strategy although we have an, a Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center. But as you know, that's been on pause, and there's hope that the center would open uh, next year, probably in January. So I think municipally, those are things that could be done. I've also argued that uh, sometimes the municipal government needs to also take legal action. For example, we have Yellow Fest, um at the at the forecourt of City Hall every Saturday, they are there. There should be legal action taken on them. If you look at the history of uh, of hate crimes or hate speech in Canada, it's always been settled in the courts, right? So I think that that's another uh, avenue to uh, to address some of these issues. In the criminal code, it's laid out exactly what uh, hate crime and hate speech. Uh, is and so those are some of the avenues that needs that needs that we need to look at. Our opening guest here is Kojo Dantney, a manager of programs with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. We're talking about the latest national crime data for 2018 released by Statistics Canada that shows that per capita, Hamilton has the highest rate of police reported hate crimes in this country. Uh, 17.1 hate crimes reported for every 100,000 people. That compares to just 6.4 for every 100,000 in Toronto. So a huge difference uh, between the two cities that are separated by, you know, 70 kilometers of highway, give or take. You mentioned the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center, uh, which uh, is now on hold. It was opened last year. Did you notice any progress being made, some positive steps through that facility? Yes. I mean, I think, yeah, there were some positive steps uh, uh, taken to to provide the support that's needed and the, uh, uh, the institutional pool in terms of trying to address racial discrimination, prejudice, and, and, and what have you. Um, but uh, we, just, we just, I think the city of Hamilton is currently doing uh, surveys, community surveys, to hear from residents as to how the center should look. So uh, we, we just have to hope and pray that uh, residents put in 
uh, their their hopes for the center, and that uh, by next year the center should be up and running. You mentioned uh, yellow vesters at City Hall. We've had other uh, far right uh, or or racist actions, uh, not only in the city but across uh, Canada. Uh, certainly, they've been highlighted in the United States as well. What's the level of concern among people in the the black community here in Hamilton, the Jewish community, the Muslim communities? Is there is there fear? Is there concern? Is there anger? There's probably a lot of all of that. I, I would assume. Yes, there's there's um, uh, there's lots of lots of emotion. Um, and and I think uh, uh, um, yeah, there's just lots of emotion. You don't know what to do, and like like I've said numerous times, these things happen everywhere. So whether it's in a public space or even when you go to work, right? There are things that uh, some people might say. They might find it uh, funny or think uh, they are trying to crack a joke or or make. Um, uh, uh, some comments, but these are all things that add up to the uh, to the emotional toll that uh, hatred, racism, stereotypes have on uh, on, on on many residents uh, in in Hamilton. And are those uh, just some examples of some of the? Uh, incidents that would not be reported to police? You know, someone cracks a racist joke or makes a, a remark that they think is funny but obviously is not funny to the person it's intended to. Are those just some of the examples that police would never hear about? Yes, I think it happens in the workplace all the time, right? Like someone could use the the N-word if, if they go to HR and that's reported, what is HR going to do? Right, they they they, they might have uh, an anti-harassment policy, but then the policy just said we shouldn't harass people. <laughs> right, it doesn't say when this happens, what what's going to be done. Right, what's going to be done to the person that uttered uh, the racial flair, uh, and then how do you also address the trauma that um, the person is feeling? Right, so those are things that we 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 haven't we we don't take uh, stock in. So then, when now political leaders don't uh, uh, don't say anything or or traffic in stereotypes and rhetoric in in terms of immigration, xenophobia, Islamophobia, what have you, then people that make those jokes now feel emboldened and empowered to then take that to the next step. And that's what we saw happen at uh, Hamilton Pride, where violence took place and there was, uh, you know, inaction and, and limited action from the Hamilton police. We have a couple more minutes with Kojo Dampney, manager of programs at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. We're talking about the latest national crime data for last year, which shows that Hamilton on a per capita basis is the highest rate of police reported hate crimes in this country. You mentioned when, you know, political leaders and a lot of people have pointed to Donald Trump as being maybe the ringleader of this when uh, officials of that stature don't condemn remarks or actions uh, from people who are uh, racist let's just call a spade a spade that you know people are emboldened to voice their opinions uh, they they throw the filters off and they have a go at it is that not the sole reason but is that a big reason why these stats are going up as opposed to going the other way Yes, I think it's it's one of the one of the reasons. It's not the main reason. 
it's just one of the reasons. Um, uh, that's why we're seeing what's what's going on. And the classic example, um, yes, every everyone seems to give uh, Donald Trump the the flashpoint, but even when he um, told the four congresswomen to go home, uh, even the prime minister from Canada didn't explicitly say state that that was a racist comment. Whereas Angela Merkel, uh, the chancellor from Germany, said those were racist comments. So those are, are, are things that I think elected officials on all spectrums from all levels of government need to do so that it, it, it brings down the temperature of, of, of emboldening people to say uh, hate-filled hate uh, language and then use that to incite violence and breach of peace and, 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 and uh, influence other residents in the city. So regarding the Prime Minister's comments to uh, what Trump had to say regarding the squad, quote-unquote, uh, the, the PM basically said this is not how we do it here in Canada, and Donald Trump's remarks are unacceptable. That's basically what he said. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But you want, you want to hear a stronger retort from the Prime Minister? Yes, and I think that by saying that we don't do things in Canada here, too, that's also a misnomer, right? This, 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 this country has... Uh, uh, a colonial history when it comes to uh, uh, indigenous communities. We've heard from the uh, had the, the report on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, right? So, and then not not to also mention the history of slavery here as well. There's there's recent pictures of uh, KKK members uh, down Jane Street, right? So. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. I think the misnomer is that Canada is is a place where there's multiculturalism. None none of that stuff happens. If if we continue to tell ourselves that story, then this is why hate is allowed to uh, to breed in the city. And then when we have events, that, uh, uh, issues like at, at Pride, then we we seem to be uh, uh, surprised. But then for equity-seeking groups. We have known this. We keep on saying we need change. We need drastic action. When when I, when is this going to happen? Kojo, really appreciate the time. Good luck. Good luck continuing to fight this fight. We're here alongside you in that uh, in that battle, uh, and we'll talk to you down the road. Okay. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feed Ontario's 2018 hunger report shows Hamilton Center had the second-highest per capita food bank use last year. A study from the former Ontario Association of Food Banks found access to food banks last year jumped 3% to nearly 508,000 people and more than 3 million visits compared to 2017. Now, the report also shows 12,300 people visited food banks in Hamilton Centre 111,000 times last year per capita use of 12 in 100 people. So for every 100 people in Hamilton Center, 12 of them are using a food bank. Only Ottawa Vanier had a higher per capita figure. They're at 15 in 100. That's also the highest in Ontario. What's more disturbing is that the 2018 Hunger Report found children to be one of the largest demographics of food bank users at 33%. 
And 25% of seniors access a food bank more than 12 times a year compared to 13% of people under the age of 65. Now, Hamilton Foodshare helps more than 30,000 people each year in this city. And Joanne Santucci is the executive director of Hamilton Foodshare and joins us now here on the Bill Kelly Show. Joanne, good morning. Good morning, Ray. Hamilton Center has the second highest per capita food bank use in 2018. How does that make you feel? It is not a list I want Hamilton to be on, that's for sure. That's for sure. We're trying so hard in the city really to reduce poverty as much as possible. And, uh, you know, I, I think this list or this, this uh, map is wonderful because it's a creative way to tell lawmakers who we sent to Parliament, who we sent to Queen's Park, that you can now go on a map and look at all of the people who are affected by your decisions or lack of decisions. So I like the map because it really brings home the urgency to really uh, have an anti-poverty strategy in place that really can help the lives of people who are suffering so much in our own community. There's been a lot of talk uh, amongst local government officials uh, at the provincial level, at the federal level, about helping those in poverty, about creating more affordable housing and all the other things that go along with that. So we've heard a lot of talk, but are we seeing any action? You know, there's no silver bullet. Everybody's got an answer, but what we have to do is combine several things together that will have the impetus we need to show that there is going to be a deficit in some of those areas that we're looking at filling, you know, filling the gap in. Like, if you look at the basic income pilot project, if they had just completed that project, we would have all the data and all the analysis to find out, you know, uh, where we can move forward from there. But they cancel that. You know, we, we uh, in, the, in the fall... This isn't really a poverty problem. It's really an income problem, Rick. This is the problem. People have incomes that are so dire, that are so below the poverty line, they can't, can't even make the rent. Never mind rent and utilities. We have people here in Hamilton that have come to us who make 400 that use 100% of their money on their rent and utilities. What are they doing for the other 35 days? Wow. So, so part of what we have to say is this is a dire situation. It's been going on and it's accumulating. The big story right now with our hunger report that's going to be coming out is that children has increased 10%. More babies lining up the food bank. I don't know what number is the appropriate number where we actually have to make a stand. Uh, I, I don't know where that is. But 10% more children now lining up to a food bank than compared to last year. And that's all of Hamilton? This is Hamilton, yes. So usually, um, more, most people are in, um, we found that hunger, uh, this is the first time over two or three years, it's actually expanded a little bit. We have found that over the last two or three years, it's actually deepened that people who would come to a food bank once might need to come more than once now to a food bank, right? So if you look at uh, the amount of people who come to a food bank, just say all, the amount of visits uh, across the city, there are about 22,000 visits a month going across the emergency food network that Hampton Food Share is the uh, emergency food hub supplying food to these different frontline organizations, right? But in the, uh, in the end, when you look at the unique people coming, we have like, you know, 8,000 adults coming, like almost 5,000 children coming. Um, I don't know. We have to figure out a way to combine all of the energies that's in this community and do one foul push ahead. There are so many different ways we have to go, Rick. Like, like first of all, we have to correct the, the rates. 70% of the people who come to a food bank are on a government assistance program. The assistance programs are sometimes 30 and 40% below the poverty line. The poverty line is being able to meet your basic needs. Below that means you cannot. They are 50% below that line. 
How how do the number of visits nowadays compare to the rates of say five ten years ago? Is 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 it terribly worse? Is it marginally worse? Where are we going? I think it's been incremental for the last ten years. So where there has been a, a little, there has been a bit of a surge, and then three and four and five percent. But if you just look at you know the economies over the last. Uh, I don't know, 10 years, how many recessions have we been in? What happens in food banks is when there's a downturn, even a slight one, people need help. When they come to get help, they find themselves in this spiral that they just can't seem to get out of. And they stay there for a while, at least five years, in order they can get back into the community, get that job they want, and move further out of the, the poverty that they're in. It takes a while to do that. We're chatting with uh, Joanne Santucci, Executive Director of Hamilton Food Share here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Uh, You mentioned children. The Hunger Report found children at 33% were one of the largest demographics of food bank users. Um, Ours is 40%, right? 40%. 39.8%. These are individuals that, I mean, they can't get a job. They can't get any income. They're really caught in this system. They are. They're, 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 you know, when children start lining up the food bank and aren't skipping rope in front of their house during the summer, that's a problem. You know what I mean? And that, that's an indicator. The next looming, uh, I, I think, concern that we're going to have to talk about really is seniors as well. You know, the seniors have a decline in pensions. There's a decline in personal savings. Uh, many of them who, who don't have pensions didn't have really big jobs, so they, they, have, they couldn't actually contribute to their pension at a lot. You know what I mean? So they don't have a lot of savings. And now we're finding that pensioners now need social housing. And, and social housing wasn't really built for people who couldn't be independent. So you know there's, when you get to be a, you know, a senior's age, you could have a, you know, some physical problems, things of that nature. Social housing wasn't really built for that. You know what I mean? So now we're looking at a large amount of seniors uh, that are going to be retiring. How many of those will have pensions? How many of those will have to lean on a system in order to make, a, make ends meet? These are our parents. The report found that 25% of seniors access a food bank more than 12 times a year. That's an average of yeah. once a month. How does that compare yeah. to Hamilton? Um, I would say that um, uh, the seniors are at, uh, let's see, I would say probably about eight or nine times a year. Wow. And we have about seven, eight hundred of them that, that come to the food bank. And you're talking that's about, right you know, you're talking about a, uh, a base that's on a fixed income now. I mean, they're yeah, retired. But, they're they're, not, they're not all, no longer pulling in the income that they used to. Absolutely, or maybe they have a a partner who passed away. You know what I mean? They were doing okay until that point. You know, we have, I find a lot of seniors are just doing okay until one of their partners passes away. You know what I mean? And that cuts their income in half, which means they have to move, and that starts a, a downward spiral in in their pension from the government. Can they actually afford an apartment? There's apartments now in Hamilton, uh, even basic ones for one bedrooms that are going for over a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars for one bedroom apartment. We also find with seniors, too, there's decreased mobility. There's also a reduced ability to cook and clean, all of those things. We're chatting with Joanne Santucci from the Hamilton Food Share here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. So now the tough questions come. How do we, how do we change this? How do we reverse this cycle? What we have to do is address the income. We have to start somewhere. And I think the basic pilot income project was something that we've been advocating with food banks for the last 25 years. And when the, the government finally, provincial government finally took it up and, and started doing it, we said, fine, this is going to be wonderful because the, the, the amount of change that's going to happen for people just being able to buy a bus ticket, just 
being able to, you know, get to the end of the month and have enough food and not worry that they're not going to have enough food or money to purchase food or they're going to use that money to buy food and now they're not going to pay their rent. The anxieties around poverty are immense, Rick. And I think we have to address the income first. So Hamilton Food Chair is also supporting Paul Miller uh, in, in, at Queen's Park. And it'll be late September, early October, the third reading for a, a commission to examine and set realistic basic rates for anybody who has to fall onto the social safety net, that at least they'll be able to pay their rent and feed their children. So it's going for its third um, third reading. There's also uh, uh, conservative support for the bill, so we're hopefully it will, be, it, will, it will be the start, right? The next is stop clawing back money from people who are trying to get back into the workplace who are on some kind of an assistance. You know, why are we doing that? The next is they're screwing around with the, the definition of disability. And I wish it would be to incorporate more people who don't qualify, but it's exactly the opposite, I, I fear, right? So it has to be remain inclusive of, you know, episodic illnesses as well. So there's all kinds of things we can do. Now, affordable housing, our city is amazing. Uh, our, our city council, uh, our city staff uh, on the Housing and Homelessness Committee, they are so hard at work. We're sitting around, uh, you know, uh, meetings trying to figure out what kind of housing, how fast can we get housing in, what type of housing are we going to need, it's really an industry that's going on, or an enterprise right now, to figure out how can we bring relief to so many people who have been waiting for so long, you know, for a home. You mentioned the Basic Income Pilot Project a couple of times now. It, it was being used for at least a few months before the Ford government nixed it. Did you notice a difference in, in the levels of people oh that my, were coming in? Oh, my goodness. You know, the simplest thing... Someone would tell you, you would see just the light of joy. They were able to buy a winter coat that year. You know what I mean? A lot of us, you know, grumble, we got to go to the mall, blah, 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 you know, get a coat. But really, you know, it was such a joy for them to actually have something new on their back that actually fit them, that actually was fit the actual environment as well. There was others who, who talked about, uh, you know, buying their children a new pair of shoes and, and not having to worry whether the, the, the pennies would add up and they could actually make that rent. These are just small little things that none of us even think of, but they were the immense joy of someone now knowing that they can become independent of the very other systems that they'd had to add access because they didn't know whether they could stay in their apartment. They didn't know whether they could feed themselves and pay that rent at the same time. Small little joys, but oh my goodness, they're the beginning pieces of changing lives. I can't imagine the emotional thud that they must have felt once the project was nixed and now they're back to square one. It was so horrible that they they were signing off because these are people who who took you know it, it doesn't it's not easy to uh, access these services for the government. There's a lot of hoops, a lot of you know criteria. You know, a lot of times you're denied and you got to reapply again when you're not well. All these things, you know, and they gave that up. They gave everything up and signed on because this was an agreement for three years. And at the end of that three years, we were going to assess how it impacted their lives. And there was a very very small standard. Are you better off than you were when you got onto this basic income pilot project? And a resounding yes from almost every participant. Wow. We're speaking with Joanne Santucci, Executive Director of the Hamilton Food Share here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. And we're talking about Feed Ontario's 2018 Hunger Report that shows Hamilton Centre has the second highest per capita food bank use in 2018. Hunger doesn't know borders. It, it goes everywhere. So how does Hamilton Center compare to maybe some of the other areas in this city? Um, the, uh, it's not down by these areas. It's down by different wards. So uh, I think that's the highest one. I think they all scale down a little bit from there. 
But uh, again, this is an issue that's across Hamilton. It's not just in the downtown or the East End or the yeah, North the End. Yeah, the downtown is, is basically a concentration or a, what do they call it, a, a saturation point of the amount of people that are there, how many would access and need that. I think it's a little less around the rest of the city. If you look into the, uh, uh, hang on here. In like the West End or the East End or the Mountain, we're seeing like little little spurts of info or, or pockets of uh, people who access food banks in those areas as well. Yeah, here, like Hamilton West, uh, Ancaster is 100 people. Um, uh, Hamilton East, Stony Creek, uh, 4 and 100. Pardon me, the, the Hamilton West, Ancaster was 4 and 100. Uh, Stony Creek is 4 and 100. Uh, Hamilton Mountain, 6 and 100. Burlington, uh, 2 and 100. Uh, that kind of, see, they're, they're a little bit lesser than that. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, probably a third less. You know what I mean? We're also seeing a lot of new people in this city, and a lot, a lot of those new people are, are immigrants. They're coming from other countries. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing more and more of them accessing food banks? Because they're starting, uh, in many cases, from square one as well. Yes, they really are. Uh, well, we had the Syrian uh, influx come in, and uh, our city was so organized around their, uh, you know, the, them coming in, them being introduced to what's going on, the housing, all of that stuff. Our city did a wonderful job, and that was actually Wesley Ministries did a, a wonderful job, and a few other organizations uh, getting them settled in. But we find that uh, um, we also have to look at the food bank of how can we also add culturally uh, appropriate foods uh, within the sleeve of what it is we do as well. And that's been a, quite a challenge for us over the years. Hamiltonians can also do their part too. I mean, if someone's listening to this segment or downloading the podcast later on and hears about this, uh, you know, we can give to the food bank to to help these people in need. Absolutely. You've got a neighborhood food bank in your neighborhood. You know, give it a call. Give Hamilton Food Share a call. We'll tell you where the closest one is to you. Go down with a bag of food. Go down with a, a donation. The summertime is a difficult time for us. A lot of people are away and on vacation, so donations decline a little bit. So anything you can do uh, this summer would be absolutely helpful. And I also wanted to just do a shout-out to the city of Hamilton and thank them so much. Uh, they ended up giving a, a grant to the emergency food center, uh, pardon me, the emergency uh, uh, food network to help uh, with all of the food uh, concerns coming out uh, uh, this uh, this summer. So we're able to stock the shelves and, um, uh, you know, when people are coming uh, this summer, because we know it's going to be a, a pretty uh, heavy summer as far as access to the food bank. So I want to say a shout out to the city and say thank you very much for adding food to the shelves this summer. That's so needed. What are some of the most needed items right now? Mostly um, the needed items are, are, are things that you would eat in the summer, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, uh, a lot of times people eat a, a lot of, uh, you know, rice and pasta. Uh, they, there's uh, protein items is a really good thing to donate. Usually the protein items are the most expensive. So if you can donate to the food bank that, they could use the extra money that's left over by not buying that, but buying more vegetables and other things that kids would need, juices and cereals and things of that nature. Do you also find at this time of the year that people are donating back-to-school items? They really are. It's wonderful. And you also, too, the, the food bank isn't what it used to be, you know. We've raised over 3.3 million pounds of food last year, and over 60% of it was fresh, you know what I mean? Which was, uh, you know, eggs and meat and cheese and, and stuff for salads and all kinds of fruit and vegetables. So, you know, uh, the food bank isn't what it used to be. We're really making a marked effort into uh, really looking at nutrition as another building component for, you know, if you're, if you're having a, a problems in your life, you need that nutrition to actually think, to move, to to move yourself forward. So uh, we're really happy about the contributions that are coming in. So if you want to give something, give a protein item or, or something, or juice for kids, uh, things of that nature. It will be very helpful. And, and money goes a long way too, right? Money goes a long way. For every dollar we, we can raise, we can raise $5 worth of food. So we can stretch that five times uh, the limit uh, if you want to donate to the food share. Excellent. Joanne, appreciate the time. Good luck with this battle. 
Wonderful, Rick. Have a nice day. You too. Joanne Santucci, Executive Director of Hamilton Food Chair here on The Bill Kelly Show. Uh, I mean, the, the numbers are, are startling. When you break it down, the numbers are simply startling in terms of the number of children and seniors and residents in this city that need to access a food bank, that need the services of Hamilton Food Share. Otherwise, well, I, I just don't want to think what the alternative is. 507,000 people, nearly 508,000 people access to food bank in 2018 compared to 2017. That's a that's a ton of people. Just over 12,000 in Hamilton Center. That's a per capita usage of 12 in 100 people. Second highest in Ontario. Listen, go to the website of Hamilton Food Share, go visit a local food bank, uh, give them a, a monetary donation, bring some food if you can. That is going to go a long way to helping uh, the less fortunate in this community. And, yeah, governments have to step up, too. I know there's been a lot of talk. Let's see a little more action. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What many are calling the Cam H fiasco. So multiple investigations have been launched after two men convicted of violent offenses and detained at a Toronto mental health facility walked away, including one who hopped on a plane and fled the country. Now, Toronto police confirmed that 27-year-old Ahmed Swalim briefly walked away from the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health on Monday, only to be found several hours later. Salim was found not criminally responsible on multiple counts of armed robbery and theft related to a string of robberies back in uh, 2012. His disappearance came weeks after Jebin Kong, uh, convicted of murder, escaped Cam H, hopped on a plane, and fled the country undetected. Both Kong and Salim were found to pose a significant risk to the public during recent hearings with the Ontario Review Board, which annually examines all cases involving people found not criminally responsible. The 47-year-old Kong killed his roommate with a meat cleaver in 2014 and was found not criminally responsible on a charge of second-degree murder as a result of his mental illness. He was out in the community on a short-term pass when he made his escape on July 3rd, and police say he boarded an international flight, but they've not disclosed his destination. Swalim, who has schizophrenia and a history of substance abuse, committed a rash of armed robberies, as I mentioned, in 2012, was ultimately found not criminally responsible of five counts, each of armed robbery and theft, over $5,000. Kong's disappearance has prompted both CAMH and Toronto police to launch reviews of their protocols and led to calls for explanations from both Premier Doug Ford and Toronto Mayor uh, John Tory. So let's bring in Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, Ross and McBride, former Crown attorney, who's in studio with us, gracing us with his presence. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Rick. It's nice to see you again. So this is a, well, a, a, a troubling story, a, a complex story, that's for sure. Um, maybe we'll start with your reaction or interpretation of how everything unfolded here. Well, first of all, I, I have a concern as to how it's been reported in the media okay. and to some extent, therefore, how it's going to be perceived and understood by the public. And it's not that I have any strong advocacy brief for one side or the other specifically, but on the other hand, I like people to understand really what goes on in the justice system and to some extent you know, what happens in a situation where somebody has been found not criminally responsible. 
and it might provide a measure of reassurance that it's not a system that's totally just messed up or in need of an entire overhaul. I wouldn't call it that. Okay. So let's maybe start with uh, the NCR, not criminally responsible. What does that mean? All right. It used to be the case, uh, Rick, that the language used for the section, section 16 in the code, criminal code, was not, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. That's the phrase we used to hear. Mm-hmm. And somebody was then essentially uh, uh, detained or hospitalized at the pleasure of the lieutenant governor and council. And it sometimes went on for decades. And that system was found to be unconstitutional, essentially fundamentally unfair. And the code got amended. And the language was similar, but it's now termed as not criminally responsible a reason of mental disorder. And the person then is subject to a disposition, if found that way, either by a judge or by the Ontario Review Board in Ontario. And the majority of times, if not the vast majority, the decision for disposition is done by the Review Board. What is it to be found not criminally responsible? Is it a get out of jail and is it a free pass and is it a defense we're seeing used far more often? No, no, and no. First, the burden is on the defense to have to show. On the balance of probabilities, the individual is not criminally responsible. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, the idea of it is that the person has suffered from a disease of the mind that renders him or her incapable of appreciating the nature and the quality of the act that was the crime. In other words, the immediate physical consequences. You stab someone with a knife thinking it was a banana. Well, you didn't really appreciate that. Or if you're incapable of knowing that the act was wrong, and wrong is generally considered to be in the moral sense, the moral wrongness of it. So that somebody operating under such an extreme delusional belief that it's necessary to do this to be able to preserve the sanctity of life and the safety of the world, that's the kind of delusion that the person would say, I believed it was the right thing to do. And psychiatrists would need to be able to evaluate and determine, is it a genuinely held belief, a real disease of the mind? If so, then a judge or a jury would determine on the balance of probabilities as it been shown, the person should be found not criminally responsible. And there are trials on that issue. Mm -hmm. Crowns will retain psychiatrists to do an assessment of the person and give an opinion if they don't feel that it fits. Or you may have cases where Crown and Defense both have psychiatrists assess the person. And we aren't talking about 15 minutes. We could be talking about a month or two Mm -hmm. or three. And if they agree, well, then you're going to wind up with an NCR disposition. So what happens once that is uh, brought upon an individual? They are, they are ruled not criminally responsible. What happens then is the Ontario Review Board is, I think it's a seven-member panel, and there's representation from the legal committee, from the world of, of psychiatry, from medical standpoint, and psychology, and representation from the community. There, so it is really a panel, maybe five, um, that will decide what the disposition is. And under the law, the concept is the disposition is to be the least onerous and least restrictive. A report is put before the review board as to what they are, what, what should be uh, the approach to follow. And if somebody's considered to be a significant risk, and that's, think of that as the kind of threshold, mm-hmm. significant risk, then we're into the realm of what kind of disposition. And it may well be that the person's going to be hospitalized in a secure type of facility with a limitation on the capacity to get out beyond that. And, and how it works then is that's going to be reviewed every year. Now, I'll just go back for a step. Hearings are often, they involve representation from the Crown Attorney's Office as well as from the hospital, as well as on behalf of the individual. And again, these issues are not resolved quickly. You have healthcare professionals, legal professionals, and community representation that are going to decide the disposition. And if the individual is considered to be such a significant risk that the community safety would be endangered if the person was allowed outside of the hospital, well, then they aren't going outside of the hospital. But where it gets more 
complex is after, let's say, a year or two, three, four, and there's no limitation. With a finding of not criminally responsible, there's no, and then it's the end of three years or five years or seven years, a conviction and a jail sentence, you've got a finite term. NCR and the disposition, it could potentially be for life. Mm -hmm. The review each year is meant to update. How is the person doing now? How has he or she performed, responded to treatment, holding to or not holding to the delusional beliefs? And you can allow for a gradual form of reintegration into the community. Because remember at the Corvette record, the justice system considers the person to be ill, not criminal. Right. And so there's an objective that at some stage, if possible, they can get back to the community. And many, and I've represented some, NCR on, on matters as serious as uh, assault, with, uh, assault endangering life, um, arson, where they're back in the community, you don't hear from them again. That can happen. Mm -hmm. But only when the annual review might determine that the person can qualify for forms of passes to the community. Uh, our guest in studio here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML is Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, Ross and McBride, former Crown attorney. We're talking about uh, what many are calling the Cam H fiasco. So in, in both of these cases, both of these men were given day passes. So at, at the end of the day, they, after you know years in this uh, facility, were uh, allowed to be in the community. Uh, and that's not out of the norm, as, as you mentioned. No, exactly. And in fact, I think the, the phrase is used that they're permitted um, access to the community that's indirectly supervised, meaning that the individual lets the hospital know there's a certain term when he's going to be here, she's going to be leaving. And it may not even necessarily be a day pass. It could be a matter of even a couple of days, a weekend or something like that. So we aren't dealing with a situation of somebody escaping from the hospital. Right. And that's a major misinterpretation. People talk about he, quote, walked out of the hospital, unquote, suggesting that the hospital didn't exercise security and unbeknownst to them, the person was leaving. Right. They that's, knew he left. That's the case. Right. And they only allowed him to leave on the basis that he'd had a track record, as it were, of being able to function in the committee, for example, for a day or two or whatever, and then returning. And so when you have a situation such as the second one, the more recent case, mm -hmm. the person didn't return in a timely way. They let the police know and the person was found. On the face of it, you might say, look at this. This person was found NCR, a series of armed robberies. How can he be walking around in the community? Well, if it was five or six or seven years ago, if he had achieved a measure of stability by the proper treatment regime with medication, if he had been in the community on occasions in the past and returned, it isn't quite so alarming that it turns out the person does not come back and they wind up finding him a couple of hours later. Not committing further offenses, right. simply not returning. I don't know that I'd call that a fiasco. In fact, Rick, I'd venture to say it happens from time to time. Mm -hmm. it, remembering that from the standpoint of a pass and the review board, they're only going to get to the community if they're considered to be um, someone who is going to be able to comply with those terms. Right. The other fellow is a more unusual situation. He apparently had had a number of passes. They were trying to get him situated in community housing, and then he gets on the plane. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where probably the, the word fiasco comes from is there was a gap in time from when Mr. Kong left the facility and the public was notified about what had happened. And I think that's maybe what the, the public or the media is kind of feasting on is why the delay in that, uh, in that knowledge. Let's break that down into a couple of elements because that's, that's certainly an important part of it. Number one, when he's hospitalized, that doesn't mean when he's found NCR, he surrenders his passport and his driver's license. And theoretically, some might say, well, he should. The justice system might say, just a minute, he wasn't found guilty. And even if he found guilty, don't forfeit their passports mm -hmm. or driver's licenses. Right. He's found not criminally responsible. So does he have the capacity to have a passport? He could. Driver's license? He could. 
That's number one. Um, number two, from the standpoint of when he left and what did, did the hospital notify the police, they may well have in a timely way saying, here's somebody who hasn't come back as we expected he would. And again, the guy had been in the community a number of different times. Mm-hmm. And there's no suggestion he went out and reoffended. What he did, he went out on his pass, he then left. If the police are notified in a timely way, it's for them, as in the second case, to see if they can find the guy. We can't really say at the airport that somebody made a mistake there. This individual, there's nothing on record to suggest they have to stay. Right. So that's that's something that wouldn't necessarily pop up on a screen where an error airline attendant can say, hey, wait a minute, there's a red flag here. That's right. They aren't leaving Canada. There's nothing to call for a criminal record check. And that's an issue in and of itself, Rick, which some might say maybe this ought to be refined. What should be on the police computer system? My understanding in talking to a friend who's a retired police officer, they report if it's a conviction and what the conditions are for probation or parole or outstanding bail. But terms of a disposition, I don't know that that's on the computer. Hmm. But one, at at the airport, may well not be picked up. Right. The issue of notifying the police, I'll presume the hospital does so and did so in a timely way. The issue then becomes for the public. I don't know that we necessarily have to say that an individual who's had years of essentially stable enough behavior that he or she could be in the community on a daily pass doesn't return and the alarm bells have to go and the public has to be notified. I think we could we could wind up hearing many more of those under circumstances really which are not all that alarming. This one, because the guy left, made it exceptional. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be faulting the police to say, oh, the public should have known and it took nine days? If you had an escaped individual who was clearly still dangerous and who had no authority to leave the institution and somehow managed to get away and there's a risk to the public, a very real substantial yeah, risk, different story. then you say, fine, public should be notified. The police have that obligation. But I don't put these cases in that category. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple minutes. A- any final thoughts on this whole process and what the public should know? Well, I, I think that it's it's an important aspect of what lawyers need to do is to try and ensure the public does get informed. Mm-hmm. I think that people do have to m- have the understanding that the concept of somebody being, being found not criminally responsible and where that fits, the overall view is the person has had a mental health-related issue. We're trying to find a way to reintegrate the person in the community in a manner which can be done safely. People have found NCR are a very low category of reoffending. So I would simply say this. Let's not get alarmed at a case like this. I don't believe there was a basis for such public anxiety. Mm-hmm. Let's just get reassured and keep the matter in proper perspective and fine, have the review and see what went wrong. And if there's something significant, change it. But let's keep things in perspective. Uh, that's a great perspective from Jeff Manishin joining us in studio. Uh, criminal lawyer, Ross and McBride, former Crown attorney. Uh, thanks for coming in and, and sharing your insight and your thoughts on this. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, Rick. Anytime. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.